Commander, you've rained on my glorious parade. For this, I'm sending everything I've got at you. But I won't let you have the satisfaction of catching me. I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been dropped in my capitalism. Space! Hello everybody and welcome to episode number 27 of the Pro Pro Podcast. I'm your host, it's your boy Stato, aka George, whatever I'm saying my surname is this week. Joining me as always, we have got David Forrest. David, how are you doing? I am doing well. Um, I've just woken up after getting drunk when Thistle went 1-0 up at Rangers and Ibrick, so I'm looking forward to the Scottish Cup quarterfinals, Ian McCall's <laughs> party at Thistle, going from <laughs> strength to strength, Nicholas Sturgeon's leading us to independence. <laughs> I'm I'm going to raise a can of lilt tonight to this. Um, <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn standing as the Labour candidate in Islington North. I'm making a point to make this incredibly dated within about 45 seconds of this episode. <laughs> Real proper timestamp right on it, right there. But yes, I am doing, despite the, the many, many losses in my life this week, I am doing quite well. Fantastic. And on this episode, we have a special guest, which is Zoe Boyd, who is a return guest to the uh, podcast, the rare return guest. Not because we don't like having people on multiple times, I hasten to add, just because like it's, it's more the choice of the other people, really. Zoe, how are you doing? I'm good. Well, I was good, but then Dave has just reminded me of all the news. <laughs> now, now I'm sad again. <laughs> That's just the vibe we want on this podcast. Just like on we mix with a bit of depression, and then we'll be, I mean, actually perfect frame of mind to talk about 90s Japanese MMA. So um, I, I should probably explain Zoe's role in the Purple Podcast Expanded Universe before we start, because you might not have listened to the couple of episodes of Big Egg Podcasting Universe that we did. Zoe's role in the Triple P family is whenever we talk about MMA, Zoe comes on the podcast and really gives us the answers to two questions. The first one is, is this a work? And the second one is, is this any good? Performing much the same role that, uh, you know, Nish Kumar goes on Trash Future and they only ever have him on to talk about terrible political thrillers written by, you know, Vince Cable or Tom Watson or some other milk cunt. So, yeah, yeah, this is basically Zoe's purgatory. Uh, she is consigned to do this forever for us and very much appreciate it. We do. So It's basically our jury duty at this point, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> it's like um, pure Twitter jury duty. Every two years ago, I uh, know you. You need, you need to record some absolute tripe MMA episodes <laughs> uh, with the Pure Free podcast, but you can use it to get time off your work. <laughs> well, I think it was uh, uh, Andy Warhol who said, in the future, everyone will appear on the Pure Pure podcast for 15 minutes talking about Yoji Anjo. Today, we are going to be talking about two MMA fights. So, 
Well, I was going to say I'm not expecting this to be an epic, but there is a lot to get your teeth into. As far as the historical stuff goes, we're actually going to save that for the next episode because the years that we're talking about really overlap with what we covered on episode number 26. Episode 28, we're going to be getting into the 21st century and all the stuff that happened. But uh, for the meantime, don't feel the need to burden your ears with the story of the transition from communism to post-communism in Russia and so on and so forth. Post-communism presumably meaning more communism. Um, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, um, you know, if, if the BBC is to be believed, uh, Vladimir Putin is a dogmatic Leninist and there's no need to look into it further. Yeah, let's just get straight into the first fight, I think. So, and I think this is actually our first visit to LLPW, aka Ladies Legendary Professional Wrestling. It's the 18th of July, 1995, and the fight is between Shinobu Kandori and Svetlana Gundarenko. Big train rolling down the line <laughs> makes me lonely. Oh, oh George, this... this yeah. <laughs> To say that David is cock a hoop about talking about this fight is uh, is oh. putting it mildly. <laughs> I'm so genuinely surprised that like anyone could be in any way excited about this fight. <laughs> you don't know David like I do. Like he's <laughs> a self-admitted admirer of shit wrestling, and this does extend to MMA as well. Well, oh wow, I, yeah. I, then this this I, is a treat then. <laughs> when he sent me this, I, I watched it, and I just messaged him going. Had you watched this match before? And he's like, no. I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's just either the more like you've either picked this because you've seen her name and it was the only LLPW match available and have massively whiffed on this, or you're playing 8D chess and you're like, this is the most David Forrest match of all time. And literally, this is everything that he wants out of professional wrestling. It was so on point. That I was like, he can't pot like pretty much we would be marrying if you if you had like seen that this was so engineering with me, this is the most engineering with me. We are we'd pretty much be a married couple by next week. Because you're clearly my soulmate if you're able to pick this out as more this match out of all of the matches in the firmament. But it turns out you hadn't watched it, so you know we're safe. No, no, no. It it, it was very much the former, like because I mean Shinobu Kandori, as if you've listened to Big Egg Podcasting Universe, we have introduced Kandori before, so I don't think it uh, bears going into in a huge amount of detail. But uh, an all-time legend of uh, Japanese women's wrestling, LPW was her company formed out of the the, the remnants of the first uh, JWP. She was its ace and top star by a considerable margin, and. Of the women's wrestling promotions in the 90s in Japan, it was the the shootiest of them. And this is best explained by the and a, a show I always raise at the, uh, the slightest opportunity, the uh, Bridge of Dreams Tokyo sports show, where every promotion pres- could present one match just to sum up what they're about. All right. AJW and JWP, did, I think it was like a six woman tag or an eight woman tag. Loads of great athletic action, you know, 16, 17 minutes, all the top stars in there just doing all the great moves. LPW's presentation was a 90-second work shoot in which Shinobu Kandori absolutely fucking squashed Harley Saito, who was like one of their more prominent wrestlers. It wasn't just some jobber, but the whole emphasis was on getting Kandori over as a shooter rather than the in-ring quality of the promotion so not without an ego shall we say and it served her well in her post-fight career as a senator in the japanese parliament best not to look into what party it is and we will have cause to say this about someone else later in the episode so stay tuned for that um uh zoe are you 
How far are you familiar with Kandori, apart from the Gabby Garcia fight, which we'll get into later, a story we've told on pretty much every episode of Big Egg, um, but and LLPW in general, and really the the Japanese women's MMA scene of this time? Like how, how much experience do you have of it? So literally none. Um, I know cool. the, the, Gabby, the Gabby Garcia fight was the, the first time I heard of, of Kandori, um, understandably, perhaps, uh, because it, like she seems to be much more pro wrestling than MMA. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that, and that, so yeah, there was the Gabby Garcia fight. Yeah, Japanese women's MMA, I followed from like Smack Girl onwards, which can I just say is a terrible name. For, a <laughs> for many reasons. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, like Smack Girl was good and there were some really great fighters from it. Um, and I know that it was sort of formed from the ashes of another promotion, which so many of them tend to be. But yeah, like 90s Japanese women's MMA, 90s Japanese MMA in general is just a complete blind spot for me, really. Yeah, I mean, the, to, to be fair, in terms of women's MMA, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of it. And you can see this because um, you can actually look at the tournament on Sherdog. So there is a, a record for it. So this was part of the Ultimate L1 tournament, which was LLPW's first foray into MMA. This was a one-night tournament, as was the style at the time. MMA promotions used to love doing one-night tournaments before they realised, actually, this probably isn't a great idea. And we mentioned on the previous episode about that 32-man tournament tournament that Mikhail Lilyakin won round about this time in Moscow, mostly by cheating as we went into. But this was just an eight-woman tournament, so it's a bit uh, it's a bit better. The other competitors, apart from Kandori and Gundarenko, were uh, Mizuki Endo and Yumiko Hotta, who were both professional wrestlers of the time. And uh, names, I, I don't know if you've heard of any of these, Zoe, because I sure fucking hadn't. Um, uh, Fieni Clay, Sandra Yervi, Liz Africano and Michelle Aboro. No, me neither. Not, not a clue. Um... <laughs> I saw one of them lose to Gudarenko in the YouTube video that you sent me. Oh, yeah, because uh, I gave you the wrong timestamp. Sorry about that. We're not reviewing that. <laughs> no, that's OK. Uh, it wasn't a very long fight, as it turns out. So I no. didn't waste a lot of time. But... Yeah, <laughs> funnily enough. Funny enough, right? So obviously sitting the wrong timestamp and this started and I literally went to take you. George, have you given me the wrong timestamp? Oh, right. OK, it's done. Right. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, all right, we're going to the next one. He was, uh, he was, like, I think it was 55 seconds it went. And yeah, it was five stars, five stars. Yeah, I mean, all but two of the preliminary fights on this show went under a minute and none of them went more than one round either. And of the six the people... Perfect did... MMA <laughs> yeah. The perfect MMA card. I'm not going to lie. The perfect wrestling card. Just, just a great night in, to be honest. I mean, that's basically what the first Pank Race card is. A lot, a lot of very short fights on that. But um, of the six women involved in this who weren't Kandori or Gundarenko, four of them didn't actually do any other MMA apart from this tournament. So there's a lot of 0-1 records involved. Mizuki Endo has a career record of 0-2. So she did another one after this. And Yumiko Hotta went about 5-5. Five and five, And what, what are those fights? Uh, again, we can uh, we can get to short, shortly when we talk about the aftermath of this. So, yeah, it's fair to say, I don't know where they got these people from. I assume they were combat athletes from some other discipline. But, like, they're bringing in the foreign uh, fighters in this. Uh, so there's, there's actually more foreign fighters in this than, than Japanese fighters. So that that's really uh, Kandori's deal. She is a very big name, not so much in MMA, but... Uh, in, in pro wrestling, absolutely peerless. Now, Svetlana Gundarenko comes from the world of judo. 
So she is uh, six foot three and 330 pounds. And please don't think this is anything other than the highest compliment coming from the members of this podcast. Like just an absolutely colossal fighter. Incredible to see. And you do get this in judo because there are martial arts which have an upper weight limit. Like famously, uh, NCAA wrestling does in America. The upper weight limit is 285 pounds in that. Judo, certainly at the Olympic level, doesn't. So you do get some absolute units in the Olympic judo in both uh, men's and women's. And it kind of makes sense because judo, you know, like jiu-jitsu, is about, okay, you're meant to be able to use physics and momentum and technique to be able to defeat a much bigger fighter and get them off the feet and onto the ground. Now, as for what happens when the much bigger fighter also knows the same techniques you do, well, this is why you have weight classes, but Japanese MMA in 1995 and much into the future doesn't have weight classes, which explains a lot of those Sakuraba fights. Yeah, and like that's something that, that traditional martial arts always say. And um, yeah, I say this as a long-time Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioner and like there's, always, there's all of this talk about how it, it lets you defeat a stronger, faster opponent. And like, yeah... It does, and you can defeat a bigger opponent, but being big helps. <laughs> it really does. If you've got a big fucker sitting on your chest, you will know it really squarely quickly. And like you won't forget that. And like it's not it's not easy fighting big big people. And so like it's I can see it being certainly in a lot of this in sports where there's no upper weight limit, there's a big advantage, which is is A, you get to be fucking huge and that's good and b there's not that many people capable of being that big and still being an athlete so your talent pool is much smaller so instead of fighting against the best like 500 people in the world you're fighting against the best 10 and like that's easy it's easier to get a gold medal in that well well, this kind of explains the career of butterbean to be honest (laughs) i I love the idea you're saying about how like japanese enemies are very reticent to weight limits it's like when like Scottish non-league teams like r- refused to have floodlights for about 40 years and used to call them the devil's lanterns because they just didn't know what to modernise whatsoever it's the blazers in Japanese MMA just re- the, the dinosaurs refusing to get with the times like, and I agree, I don't think you should have weight limits because it's really really funny um, <laughs> and I think that's far more entertaining than there's some £185 versus £186 clash of wits and tactics, no I just want to see big lads um, against small lads that's what I want that does the, the very end of combat for me and and my words did I get it in this <laughs> oh absolutely I mean I mentioned on a previous episode the first MMA fight I ever saw was Daiju Takase versus Manny Yaba so I think my my tastes have been shaped by that as well that uh, is the biggest weight discrepancy I think there has ever been in combat sports it is possible to be yes. <laughs> Oh my like, god! Yabra, what was he like? Seven hundred pounds or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he, he he was a big boy. Um, so <laughs> was a big boy, I'd yeah. like to, I'd like to pause a, a theory. I've I've got an idea. I might take to the dragons. I think you should do a fighting federation based entirely around the Guinness Book of World Records. <laughs> Just like guys with bee beards against like people like you know who can like dribble basketballs and make them fight. You see, would win. You, you obviously the main event is going to be tallest guy versus smallest guy. That's definitely going to be a thing. <laughs> or tallest versus widest, something like that. But I think a, a federation built entirely around Guinness Book of World Records holders is definitely the way to go. That is, it's a new pride. <laughs> I'll tell you who would absolutely clean up in that, and that's that woman with the longest fingernails in the world. <laughs> just back creaking everyone. Yes. <laughs> just down to like the very marrow of your opponents. <laughs> 
Um, we better talk about the fight, hadn't we? So, um, Gundarenko is in her judo gi, and Kandori is wearing something akin to what she would actually wear in a pro wrestling match. So, the story of this match is Gundarenko is using her size to close the distance, and certainly in the beginning, she seems to be doing punches because at the beginning because she knows she's meant to, but they're not really punches. She's kind of just wafting the air. It's quite funny, and it's very much how you know in in battle bots where they have a little mini bot next to them, and it's just there for shits and giggles. It's not actually inflicting any damage. It's just funny. So um, th- there's a lot of use of the cage of this, and so it, like I just wanted to ask, like, is this a particularly small octagon? Because it seemed like it to me. Yeah, it looked like it. Compare it to the, there's no like standardized size, and even within. So I remember the UFC had a had an all heavyweight main card, which you know, based on this conversation, might be worth seeking out, David. <laughs> uh, but it was it was the 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 big all heavyweight main card, but they did it in one of the smallest cages that they've ever used. Yes. Uh, and the reason, like, if, if you've got a small cage, there's nowhere to run, so you're pretty much guaranteed to get action plus heavyweights meant that that was that was exactly the same with this card. i think it was like none of the fights left the first round everyone immediately knocked out like as you would probably expect but yeah this is this was a tiny cage and like yeah it really didn't favor kandori because i think she she was fighting in the gi in the first fight i saw she had her 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 judo gi on which she she used to practice like compete in judo at one point i think yes i believe so yes so she had the gear on and then she took it off. And I can only assume that was because she knew she was fighting someone who who was a, a judo specialist and so knew that they would try and grab a hold of the clothing. But there, there's not a lot that you can really do when the cage is about three foot wide. Yeah, it's the it's the MMA equivalent of those tiny 14 by 14 holiday camp British wrestling rings. <laughs> like, it's it's not quite as bad. As, like, have, you, have you ever seen that uh, MMA in a phone box thing? Yes. yes oh my gosh yes a lot of brazilian jiu-jitsu in a car is <laughs> combat sports in a place where you shouldn't do combat sports is my jam absolutely you're amongst friends here um absolutely i was going to say it reminded me of um in wcw 2000 scott steiner had a weird gimmick for a while i think it was called the iron circle and it was like an octagon it was him fighting in an octagon but it was like the size of a thimble so it was literally, there was no, like, it was like a, you could fit two people in it and there was no other space. So, of course, it decided to have a handicap match in it because, of course, you would. And yeah, he had done this for weeks and weeks ago, like, lower the iron circle, and then him and Tank Abbott would just like jump into this <laughs> tiny, tiny, you know, call center cubicle sized fucking cage and then just like have what one of the worst matches you've ever seen in your life i i, I call it the halcyon days right but not, not many others would but yeah it just reminded me of scott, scott steiner's iron circle from wcw 2000 just a, a fantastic a fantastic thing yeah i mean like there's a lot of kandori getting smushed into the cage uh, gundarenko uses her size very well as you would she's literally twice the size of her opponent and yeah she's, she's getting shoved into the cage basically getting squished into the corner and very early judo throw from Gundarenko. Uh, Kandori nearly goes right on ahead from that, manages to, manages to wiggle out. It's kind of at this point Gundarenko starts doing some actual punches, which look like there's a little bit of oomph behind them. Kandori's low kicks, very puzzling, because if we look in the second fight, 
there's some low kicks in that and they're actual proper like you know the kind of thing you would actually do in an MMA fight Kandori's attacks to Gundarenko's legs look very much like the kind of stomps you would get in pro wrestling she looks like she'd do one of those and then just do a stone cold stunner right after I yeah I don't know what's going on there either of these women have ever trained in any kind of striking art uh, you think pretty fair for early MMA? <laughs> <laughs> I think for Gundarenko, to be fair, do you need to? Yeah, that's you know that's it's very much she's she's a luxury player at that point. Like you know, I, what she, she can strike as well. Oh my god, I don't think it's high on the priority list for Gundarenko. Put it that way. No, no, no. I mean, it, yeah, it certainly doesn't need to be. This was uh, in terms of like a mixed martial arts, quote unquote, move set or, or, you know, group of techniques. Yeah, not really. Still not really a thing at this point. You were proficient in one thing generally and you would see how far you could get with that. So um, <laughs> this is uh, essentially what we're into here. Kandori does land a couple of strikes. There's some like sort of clinch knees and she's managing to block the throws. The one bit, actually, this was quite smart tactically on Kandori's part where Gundarenko's trying another throw and Kandori gets like right behind her like so she can't kind of reach behind and get her that was really good and then just from that uh, kind of like she's trying a back suplex I was like surely fucking not <laughs> can you imagine bold uh, I say bold stratagem high risk high rewards yeah I mean if she had managed to hit it I think that would have almost closed the book on whether this would work or shoot or not <laughs> the defense <laughs> It was the Tiger Cyclone suplex that they pulled it after as it really gave the game away for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the 450 splash from Gundarenko just before the finish. Ah, oh, chef's kiss. Um, but yeah, so Gundarenko, she does a lot of headlocks in this and essentially pretty much the latter half of this fight, it's not very long, is her just grinding Kandori down to the ground and Kandori trying to escape with some punches to the head and back and uh, and God knows what else. Gundarenko just going for different holds, like going for an arm and then realising it's not going to work and then going back to the headlock. And there's a rather delightful moment where this goes on for about two minutes, right? Like uh, this, uh, she doesn't really appear to be doing anything, but also Kandori's not getting free. And then Kandori somehow manages to get free. And it's like her head just like goes pop, just comes out from under Gundarenko's arm. Just like an, an absolutely delightful visual there. Like I've I've never seen an escape like that before. Just tremendous. It and, feels like when you know how you know how like if you're you've got something stuck in something and you just go out, you just try and get it out for ages and ages and ages and then someone else comes along and then it just comes out straight away, you know, like you've loosened it, you know, all that sort of <laughs> You know, it's just you, you've done all the hard work, and then suddenly, pop, it just comes out like Candori was just, you know, milling about trying to try to work away free, and then suddenly it just came loose. Um, yeah, her head's just like a little jar of pesto. It's run Gundarenko under some hot water and banged her against the counter. <laughs> <laughs> just wrap a towel around her. Yeah. I am. I am. I, I'm not joking here, George. I think you've added moves into this match that didn't happen, right? <laughs> I, I am convinced that you have put stuff in at the start that is not actually in this match. Really? Basically, <laughs> oh, no, yeah, I, I am well aware that we're near like the finish at this point because, as far as I'm concerned, this entire match was just a headlock, really. It made me a wee bit of running about from Kendall at the start, but yeah, um, we'll get to it in a moment, but say the finish. 
Yeah, I mean, just to, just to illustrate it, when when I wrote the rise and fall of Ricky Dozan and I was doing the scenes where I described the actual matches, I made these very extensive notes just watching the matches and literally cataloging every single move that happened over the course of, you know, 30, 40, 50 minutes, however long the match was. Just reams and reams of this stuff, every single Irish whip, stomp, punch, you know, whatever. I did the same with this and I've got uh, seven lines. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, let, let's 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 get to the finish, shall we? So even though Kandori gets free, there is still a, a rather large object in between her and the remaining 95% of the cage that she could escape into. So she just ends up doing some some of the Inoki Muhammad Ali kicks to try and get Gundarenko off, who kind of just mauls Kandori's face with her gloves for a little bit and then reapplies the headlock. Then she thinks, oh, what if I do some punches too? And then um, eventually cranks on the headlock to the degree that Kandori is forced to tap out and that's the end of it. Uh, Gundarenko wins the ultimate L1 tournament in five minutes and 55 seconds so that literally was the fight i mean quite the whistle stop tour but there's not a lot of stops it's like the fucking waterloo and city line in here yeah Gunderenko was was immediately like from the start was like i am going to get a scarf hold and i'm going to just win with that <laughs> with the single-minded determination like a train is less direct she just went for it and succeeded, to be fair. I guess when you're 330 pounds, you can pretty much just go for whatever you want and eventually it'll happen. And in this case, it took five minutes, 55 seconds, however long. Yeah, 330 pounds. Like that being 330 pounds, that's my striking training. <laughs> yeah. like, like, I don't think you could overplay just how little there is in this match. <laughs> it is proper John Cage levels of nothing going on. Like, there is no joke. It's five minutes, or is it no joke, as you say, about a solid two minutes where no one moves and they're just there. And, you know, we're all just waiting about, you know, something might happen. No one knows. It was absolutely fascinating for me because it is so chronically dull that it kind of fires through the wall of dullness and comes at the other end of going, you know what? There's so little going on here that in actual fact, there's a lot going on just because of how much they are not doing. It's very much like like, um, cleaning out the horse's stable and satin tangle levels of just... (laughs) Is this it? Ah, yeah, it's just just this. But no, but there must be something. No, this is... Oh, she's won. Ah, yeah, yeah. Um, It is is like satin tango. You might even say it's Bellatar MMA. This is Bellatar MMA in every conceivable way. I, and this I will be the Puro Puro Podcast. We will see you next time. <laughs> uh, yeah, this, good night, good night, everybody. Um, no one um, I love this. Like genuinely love this. It's everything I want. Right, I don't want to watch actual good MMA. I haven't watched GFC in about eight years, right? And I have no fucking interest in it. I'd watch this every time. It's nonsense. It's complete nonsense. And like Svetlana Gundarenko is she, she is a big tree lad that is what she is <laughs> as, as as fans of the ppp and i'm i'm a big fan of big tree lads they swing about their branches and other people have to try and avoid them and take them down and it doesn't work because you get brain chopped she pulled out a brain chop in this then this this would be my 6394 sadly not but the, the thing i love i've talked about this before about how i love in wrestling a sense of struggle and you don't get that in modern wrestling. Certainly in WWE, there is no sense of struggle in a submission host. This is all struggle. This, this is 
this is no MMA, just struggle. <laughs> yeah, th- yeah. Th- this is this is basically socialism incarnate. It's just all struggle all the time, and then there's no redemption. It, yeah. Um, no, you just lose because the other the other person's fucking massive. Exactly, you're too big. It's just they're too big to fail, right? But I I was absolutely fascinated by like the, the, there is nothing in this. Oh yeah, yet, it's dog shit. It's it, so it is, powerfully it, bad. It, it is. It's powerfully bad is the best way to describe it. But I loved it because it was so powerfully bad because it. I give me this over. I think I enjoyed this more than any WWE match from 2022. <laughs> Like it's certainly shorter. It's it's certainly shorter, but I I don't know. It's just yeah, it's so weird, and there's literally so little in it that you kind of have to fill in this gaps yourself. And it's at the end of the day, it's Vanagundarenko against Shinobu Kandori, who has an ego, and it's about to get fucking shattered. This feels like a joke. It feels like. Someone in the back is like, wouldn't it be funny if we just like Shinobu Kandori get to the final and then we just get our fucking marmalized by this giant Soviet colossus who just sits on her and she can't do anything. She's clearly fucking fuming that she just can't do anything against this big woman. I mean, you mentioned it in the chat earlier, George. That This is my wife's theory on MMA and wrestling. If pro wrestling was real, the Big Show would be champion for for 20 years because nobody would beat him because he'd just sit in them. What does Savannah Gundarenko do in this match? She just sat in her and won because that's MMA, right? That's, I, I, with, that's combat sports. I've literally got written down on my notes, this match is the proof of Linda's Big Show theory. <laughs> it really is. Like It's, 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 it's always like, oh, um, it's... She's always. Uh, it's just the, the the disconnect of wrestling. The big show ruined wrestling for her because he'll win every time if it was real. And she's right. She would. I want. I want big show to go on a run and just do this like now. Yeah, and dynamite. <laughs> just have dynamite every week. Just him against like get him in the octagon. Bellator. Yeah. Paul, Bellator genuinely probably would have him. I, I, I'd be surprised if they haven't given him an offer before. Come back, Dada Five Thousand against the big <laughs> well, show. Well, I mean, there's a. <laughs> There's a very big, uh, very big reason why that. Actually, no, was it Kimbo who died, or was it? No, Kimbo died. That right, was okay. Guy, but in I the, think they in both the died. Cage, like... He got better. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, this is the thing about this fight. Like, yeah, it's it's so uneventful because, like, Zoe, you're like by far the big MMA expert. Like, you you'll have seen countless examples. I'm sure you could pick out the top of your head of fights this long that are fucking great and loads of stuff happens. I'm sure you can think of fights that are two minutes long and are great and loads of stuff happens. Yeah, I mean, like hands down, and like you could watch just if you watch the first round of uh, Dustin Poirier versus Michael Chandler. Like, that is an astonishing two minutes. The first, I mean, the first part of the first round of that fight is incredible. And then the other two rounds are fine. But just, like, you can watch incredible five-minute fights full of action, full of just excitement. Or someone could sit on someone else. I was going to ask, actually, uh, Zoe, because this is one of the reasons we've had you on the podcast. Does the lack of action in this fight actually suggest that it was legit? Because surely you wouldn't do this on purpose. <laughs> I I cannot imagine someone going, yeah, you know what we want out of this? You know what will entertain the crowd? What if Gundarenko sits in there for three minutes and then wins with a shitty scarf hold? Like, if somebody wins a match with a scarf hold, it's either 
genuinely one of the most top level grappling performances you're ever going to see or it's dog shit and i know which one i'm going for <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe, I maybe i think it is a shoot they just had a picture of me on their desk when they're how are we going to book this fight <laughs> you literally like do it for her from the <laughs> yeah oh, loads of pictures of you <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, and I think the fact that Kandori lost as well suggests that it was a shoot because she did no like putting people over. Um, so we, we should probably talk about the post-match as well. I love the post-match. So Gundarenko celebrates to, for some reason, uh, Jupiter, the bringer of jollity from Gustav Holst, the planets, is playing in the background, <laughs> um, which is very good. Then she gets a... She actually gets she gets a golden diadem, which she is clearly absolutely thrilled to have on her head. Absolutely loves it. Then she gets a plaque. Then she gets a trophy. Then she gets a giant novelty check for $20,000. This is literally the full works of the, the Joshi post-match presentation. She's got all of the gizmos and gubbins that she wants. That is amazing. That's Japanese MMA all over. Like, you win a shit fight, but we are going to give you, like, every item from Final Fantasy IV. Just all at once. <laughs> Like, here is your circle I, of blasting for being shit for five minutes. It's just incredible. I, I imagine the, the the Beaks and LLPW in the back were like, this fight is good. Like, we've written a good fight here, but there's something missing. Something that David really wants in this fight. That's missing. A giant game show novelty check? Absolutely. <laughs> Get the pen. <laughs> we're writing it right now. <laughs> Get the get the blankety blank checkbook and pen out of the office. <laughs> so we should probably talk about what happened uh, after this. So they had a rematch later this year, which Kandori won, and I think that is an admitted work in the same way that Nobuhiko Takada versus Mark Coleman was. So and so that is essentially Kandori loses the shoot and then gets her win back in a work. That was actually Kandori's last MMA fight. She only actually had one more fight after the uh, Gundarenko rematch. That was against Yumiko Hotu, who we're going to talk about in a little bit. And so her career record at the end was 4-1. and one. Gundarenko finished with a career record of 6-2. and two. Her only other loss is in the final of another tournament in 2000 to Megumi Yabushita. Now, I have actually seen that, and it's fucking great, and I don't know why we didn't talk about that, and probably also is a work, I think, but we, I, I, look, I want to talk about Kandori because she's the big name, all right. And in its own way, this match is fascinating. If you want a much more entertaining spectacle, then do go and seek out Svetlana Gundarenko versus Megumi Yabushita. Genuinely very good. Now, the last thing we should probably talk about vis-a-vis Shinobu Kandori, and we have told this story on the podcast before, certainly on Big Egg Podcasting Universe, but it would be remiss of us not to mention the time that Shinobu Kandori was going to fight Gabby Garcia, who's about 230 pounds in Rising, and then decided decided actually you know what i don't fancy it and then yumiko hotter had to do it then she ran the ropes in the first minute of the fight and then got absolutely mauled the peak of mixed martial arts worldwide i have to say it's just it's so hard to get gabby garcia an opponent at all <laughs> i can imagine get get her going to the ankle yes yeah you, you're like you know how sometimes in wrestling where like sort of a defeated four and they'll come out and they'll have like backup. And you're like, I've got an old friend, Shinobu Kandori, coming out going, You won't be fighting me, you'll be fighting an old friend. And suddenly Savannah Gundarenko comes out and just fucking sits in her. And it'd be yeah, great. It, do you like, you know, when uh, Mick Foley brought out Cactus Jack? <laughs> 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 
<laughs> that is exactly what I was thinking as well. i tell you who would be a good opponent, actually. Now, Gabby Garcia hasn't actually fought since 2018, so this might be off the table. But uh, Destiny Yarba, I know what you're thinking. Any relation to Manny? Yes, she's his daughter. She's a big unit. Get them in the ring together. Can work wonders. Could Gundarenko versus Yarbra be on the cards? Oh my what? god! I don't know oh my god! Can you imagine if that actually happens? That I'd, I'd never, I'd never like leave the house. I just watch it and I look. Can you imagine like, like orange? Can you imagine call, calling up uh, Svetlana Gundarenko? Uh, you know, do you want to get back in the ring and then go in to meet her and she's really svelte? You're like, what the fuck's this? Svetlana Gundarenko. <laughs> hey, very good. And it's just like, no, we need read you back at your fight wake. <laughs> Get on the pies. So, um, but yes, Japanese MMA continues to be, certainly in women's MMA, there's like, you know, not a huge amount of people who, it's certainly not as big a thing in relation to men's MMA as women's wrestling is in relation to men's wrestling uh, in Japan. And I think partially that is to do with the uh, very patriarchal culture. And, but there, there have been some, uh, you know, very famous Japanese female fighters who were famous because of uh, the fighting, and we we did talk about those. If you can if you can bear to listen to the amateur wrestling episode of Big Egg uh, Podcasting Universe, you can hear Zoe's lovely voice on that, and we will be talking about you know some of the people who did did go on to become uh, very big superstars, such as Kyoko Hamaguchi and so on. Incidentally, Kyoko Hamaguchi is on a. You ever heard of a show called Documental? It's no. it's essentially yes, my my friend is obsessed with it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a it's a show in which they get a load of comedians in a house together and they have to try and make each other laugh and the last person to laugh wins. And they did a version of this with female uh, female comedians and variety performers and Koko Hamaguchi was actually on it. So I was like, that's can you imagine it's like, right, laugh, laugh or put you in this armbar. Laugh, laugh or tap, bitch. Right. So, um, if, if I was on this, I'd simply just play an episode of the Puri Puri podcast and they'll be gutting themselves for like four <laughs> minutes and I'd just walk out undefeated like Savannah Gundarenko. Um, it's... All, all, the, all the great jokes we have, that's our being £330. So uh, we should go on to the second fight, I think. So we're going forward a little bit in time to the year 1999. The date is the 21st of February. The promotion is Fighting Network Rings, which we talked about back in episode 26. And one of the people involved is someone we talked about in episode 26 as well. We covered one of his fights. This is the founder and ace of Rings, Akira Maeda. So Maeda is someone we've, like I say, we have talked about him before, so we don't need to talk about his world of sport days, much as I am <laughs> inclined to just give you the whole story of Quick Kick Lee once again. But at this time, Rings, and Rings did shut of its doors. I mean, there's been numerous incarnations since, but the first run of Rings, I think, ended in um, 2002. And so this was at the time where Rings was morphing from being pro wrestling towards being MMA and there's a few years where they kind of did both and this is one of them but really it was more of a MMA promotion indeed entirely MMA promotion by the latter years it's still kind of half and half at this point uh, Maeda did have quite a few MMA fights at the time of this his record was seven and four now the number of these that were actually legit is kind of open to debate as it always is when we're talking about JMMA but notable opponents of his included Kyoshi Tamura who we talked about on the previous episode, Andrei Kopolov, who we also talked about on the previous episode, Mitsuya Nagai, who had a very lengthy professional wrestling career, Nikolai Zuev, uh, another person from the Eastern Bloc, and a trilogy of fights against a certain Magomed Khan Amanulayevich Gamzatkanov, better known as Volkan. So he had three fights against Volkan, lost two and won the final one. So seven and four, Akira Maeda's record. 
And Maeda's opponent in this fight is someone extremely special. So this is someone we didn't talk about him in the previous because he was not a professional wrestler. He was actually an amateur wrestler. And to say he's decorated is putting it mildly. Alexander Karelin had a career record in amateur wrestling of 887 and 2. He went 13 years without being defeated from 1987 to 2000. And from 1994 to 2000, he didn't even give up a single point. No one scored a point on him in six years prior to his defeat to Rulon Gardner in the final of the Sydney Olympics. Um, But prior to that, he had won three Olympic gold medals, nine World Championship gold medals, two World Cups, which is apparently a different thing from the World Championship. I don't have the time or the interest to get into it. And 12 European Championships. Alexander Karelin is possibly the most dominant sportsman of all time in any sport. The only person I can really think comes close to such a protracted level of dominance in a sport is the, this is quite obscure maybe, but the the squash legend Jahangir Khan, who won 555 consecutive games of squash (laughs) over a five-year period in the 80s. That is literally the only person I can think of that comes close to Alexander Karelin. Like, he is a, the best Greco-Roman wrestler of all time without a shadow of a doubt. There's him, and then there's everyone else just crawling around in the mud. You could say maybe, like, the only one I can think of is, is uh, the sumo wrestler, Hakuho, who, uh, oh, who yes. recently retired. And again, like, was astonishingly, has broken, like, every record. But even then, like, there's 887 and two. Yeah, it's I mean, just... Hakuho would, like, he would still lose matches though like he'd maybe the be win like loads of tournaments in a row but maybe it'd be like 14 and 1 13 and 2 in these tournaments something like that so like he was still getting beat occasionally Karelin wasn't yeah. he was just winning and it's more understandable in sumo because you're fighting for 15 days in a row for yeah. the tournaments and stuff so it's 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 more forgivable to not have that perfect record but still like i i just i can't imagine being someone like like alexander Karelin and and ever being scared of anything if, if if i was alexander carolyn and 10 men jumped out with machine guns and threatened me i would i would have full confidence that i could suplex the bullets like <laughs> the thing is as well like i don't even think there's it's not like the graces or pelly you know where they're stat padding and fighting people in Copacabana Beach and like scoring goals for the army and all that. You know, kind of padding out their stats. But like, I I don't think Karelin is that. Like, his record is pretty pretty well documented, and no one has ever disputed it by going, "No, I actually lost lots of matches in Turkmenistan." He's the real deal. Like, it, it, it's imagine being one of the two. I can't. I cannot imagine what it would have been like to have watched that 2000 wrestling final, where he finally lost, at on at the time being there. Like uh, if you were a wrestling fan, that that would be unbelievable. I, I bet you the two two losses still eat away at him. <laughs> oh, yeah, Guarantee. you know it. I, mean, I think the other the other loss wasn't in international competition. It was a domestic match. So he just lost to some random other guy in Russia. And like, I bet that guy's still telling his grandkids about about it. Like, oh, he that guy has had an erection for about 25 years. <laughs> it just like, will not go down. I once pinned Alexander Karelin in Greco-Roman. This cannot be true. The old man is dying. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Alexander Karelin's nickname was The Experiment. Make of that what you will. Lots of comparisons were drawn between him and Ivan Drago, the antagonist from Rocky IV. Here's what Karelin had to say on the subject. 
No one can completely believe that I am natural. The most important drug is to train like a madman, really like a madman. The people who accuse me are those who have never trained once in their life, like I train every day of my life. You know what? I'm not going to argue with him. <laughs> this no, was... you wouldn't, though. <laughs> no, no, I, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you know what? You know what? I'm I, yeah. not a man you would quibble with over pretty much anything. This was actually his only MMA fight. And interestingly, he was still an active Greco-Roman wrestler at this point. So I'm really not sure how they squared that. You know, this was 1999, so actually before the Sydney Olympics. Uh, UFC did try to bring him in, but apparently they couldn't even get in contact with his representatives, <laughs> let alone the man himself. Just couldn't get his phone number. And so the story goes, and I'm actually indebted to um, a guy called Sean Wheelock, who wrote an article about this fight for Figure Four Online, literally part of a series called Shoot or Work. So that was incredibly useful for me, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, he, he reports the story that the Gracies have made the agreement that if Karelin ever went to UFC, they wouldn't risk hoist against him. They would put up Hickson, who was the acknowledged best fighter of the uh, of the family. So like they're like, hoist Gracie, no, he'll eat him for lunch. That's how much respect Alexander Karelin had in UFC. He's now a politician, so... <laughs> uh, don't look in... Again, I, I'm don't sure he's a very... I'm sure he's a very liberal socialist man who's got lots of um, very respectable opinions about immigration and, you know, um, LGBT rights. I'm sure he's perfectly fine in all these things. There's no need to dig deep into this. Um, Of Um, course he went into politics. Of course he did. Like, the man's a psycho. Of (laughs) of course he did. He's he's a Russian Greco-Roman wrestler who's won, like, 878 matches. Of course he was going to go into politics. <laughs> I mean, if, if you think about the state of liberalism in Russia, actually, the leader of the Russian Liberal Democratic Party was a guy called Vladimir Zhirinovsky, who uh, died last year, thankfully, and it was an absolute mentalist on pretty much every subject you can name. It was quoted as saying, it was something like, we don't need to teach English in schools. We need to put the world at the barrel of a gun and they will all be speaking Russian. Now, certainly not alone in how shitty right wing parties called the Liberal Democratic Party. If you know anything about Japanese politics, <laughs> but um, I thought it was worth remarking upon. Yes, do do look into the man if you want to be thoroughly entertained and also uh, appalled to your very core. This fight drew mainstream coverage from publications such as The New York Times and Sports Illustrated and a gate of two point five million dollars. So like a really highly grossing fight. This was big news on both sides of the Pacific. Like it was um, a really big deal. And, you know, Alexander Karelin was, you know, he was, he was the man in terms of Greco-Roman wrestling. And Maeda was, and as you can tell from the pop for him, when he comes out and when his name is announced before the fight, still a huge name in Japanese professional wrestling. Uh, and, you know, one of the most popular fighters of all time, as we mentioned on the last episode, this is the man whose popularity was such in the 80s that he could refuse to lose to Antonio Inoki and actually get away with it. So there is that. Um, speaking of the introductions, Alexander Karelin, I know we've talked about Zangiev, but Karelin, a underrated, prematurely aged man. This fucker is 31 years old at the time this fight takes place. <laughs> wow. He's a, he's a crag of a man. He's, <laughs> he's aged like weathered rock. <laughs> I thought that he would, he looked like a picture you would find in an article with underneath it going, Macintosh's six caps for Scotland was the highest ever achieved by a Clydebank player during his 1971 <laughs> season. 
Like, a proper, this man is a, a centre defensive mid for Clyde Bank in the 70s, who moved to centre back in the late 80s when they were going through some financial troubles and came back to his boyhood club and played for Scotland a little bit. It, there is no way this man was still going in 1999. He is not 31. He, he is not. I refuse to believe that he is 31. He, he's got everything you want in a badly aging sports person. Like he's got the he's got the misshapen ears. He's got the Matt Hancock hairline. He's got forehead wrinkles so deep you could stick a fucking coin in them, like Abdullah the Butcher's blading scars. <laughs> like just ev- everything you could want. Just just incredible. Like he looks like a hard nut as well. That's the thing. He's 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 ripped to the fucking gills. The experiment, uh, but um, he, he looks imposing. He he looks like he's the best in the world. Even if you like didn't know anything about the guy, you didn't know he'd not been beaten for thirteen years. He's just he's just incredible. Like what a physical specimen. Um, so we should get into the fight. I think there's more dynamism in the first five seconds of this fight than there was in the entirety of the six minutes of the previous one. <laughs> <laughs> it helps that it's in a full-sized ring. Yes, it does. I mean, we've talked about the pitfalls of MMA being in a ring before on the podcast, but yeah, Jesus Christ, at least it's not the the, the toy town octagon that we've had before. <laughs> I can only imagine that that match in in the fucking LPW octagon. It would have been uh, an unseemly spectacle, one which I have been fully behind, but still, <laughs> yeah, we're over in thirty seconds. Even if even if it was just a work, Carolyn's instincts would have just kicked in. He'd <laughs> be like, you know, you're like the Norse berserkers. They just get the smell of blood in their nostrils. Um, yeah, so the the low kicks from Maeda are very much snappier than the kicks come stomps that Kandori was attempting, and he just immediately goes for a huge high kick, which uh, which just misses. So he's kind of showing off his uh, martial arts skills, and then is thoroughly murderized by a takedown from uh, Karelin, who gets his back. He does a lot of getting Maeda's back. Maeda's back defense, not not particularly not particularly great uh, in this fight. And he does rely on the old rope break at various, at various times. A lot of Maeda's techniques are, I'm not sure what he's going for, because there's a couple of occasions. He looks like he's going for an arm drag. It's like, obviously, he's not, because that would stretch the bounds of credulity. <laughs> but I don't know what he is doing. He's kind of just moving his body in a way that he thinks might be able to take Karelin off his feet. He goes for a flying mare at one point, which, you know, it's, it's a fair technique. It's a legit technique, uh, especially in, in judo. You see it quite a lot. I can't remember what it's called in judo. Drop saying Nagi, maybe? Or that's probably a different thing. Talking to but, the wrong guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like he goes... For for the, for a, a pretty high like a pretty low percentage throw like you can absolutely land that throw but against people who maybe are expecting it and who aren't multiple time gold meddling <laughs> Olympic wrestlers maybe you could you could land a throw like that but like within the first minute Maeda shoots for like a sloppy takedown and I just sort of I literally shouted why at the screen like, why would you try and wrestle with Alexander Carolyn? You've got the whole ring to I don't, You know what? I, if I get him on the ground, I, I think I can take him. I think I can take eight, seven, eight, and two Alexander Krellin on the ground. I'll put, I'll do a Zack Sabre Jr. arm lock or something like that, and then I'll have him in my, in my, in my clutches. It, it's, it's insanity. It's, ins- it's so good. Well, it's like when the promoters in Hawaii tried to get Ricky Dozan to shoot on Luthez 
to kind of dis- disgrace him so they could actually be the ones to run the Japanese territory. And there's admitted in his autobiography, he's like, yeah, I mean, Rikido Zan was a, a sumo. If he'd have stayed on his feet, I might have been in a bit of trouble, but he didn't. <laughs> so I think there's a lesson there to be drawn from history. There's a lot of that kind of stuff. Maeda going for things that he really shouldn't. But I mean, I mean, he, he may as well, because what techniques does he possess that actually might be effective against this guy? <laughs> well, the I honestly think you're... Yeah. yeah, the leg kicks, yeah. They're actually bothering him, or at least it looks, I don't, we'll probably get onto this. I have no idea whether this is a, a work or a shoot, but certainly it looks like the leg kicks are actually really bugging Carolyn. Like, keep doing that. Don't shoot for takedowns. Kick him in his silly knees. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, again, like, sorry to uh, repeat myself, but yeah, do the Antonio Noki Muhammad Ali technique. It genuinely fucked Ali up. Yeah. I, I want to uh, talk about Alexander Karelin's fighting stance, like the way that he sort of moves his hands and stuff like that when he's going for grapples. And I sit and watch this and I'm like, it's really, really odd. I've never seen anyone with a similar fighting stance. And to be fair, it probably is why he's 8, 7, 8 and 2. However, there was one name that came out of the air for me that i just seen every time i seen him go for a grapple. And this is going to sound mad, but go with me on it. Louis Spence. When I watched Dance Studio. Of Pineapple Dance Studios. <laughs> It was a lot of the very, it's just the way that he moved. He was very, like, there was one move where he took him down for, like, you know, a takedown. And it was genuine, like, he had him in a ballroom dance, sort of, like, tango, and then just fucked him over. And it was, it, 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 honestly, it was incre- incredibly, like, he's classically trained um, in dancing, by, from what I can see here. The man has incredible movement, and it's so weird that, I actually don't think... I mean, if you watch it with Zangiev or Hashmikov, obviously, on, on a, a lower tier of wrestler, but when they like throw people about and stuff like that, it looks horrid. They all land in their C4, and it, like, it, you know, it's all, all horrid and ghoulish and great. Karelin doesn't have any time for that. All, all it, you know, It's all velvet smooth stuff that just hits on every point so well. And yeah, I just thought he an incredibly unique man, just in terms of the way he was hitting. I was fascinated through the whole thing. Again, partly because the kicks were boring him, as you say. It was just, I've never seen it. I've never, I wish he'd done more just purely because I loved this match because it was so unique. And I, I'm absolutely screaming for more Corellan content. <laughs> I mean, the, the fighting stance kind of reminds me of some of like the default animations on Fire Pro, some of the creator wrestlers, like where they're kind of got this, this kind of. I, I guess the isometric camera kind of makes it look like that, but I do actually have an Alexander Karelin creator wrestler on Fire Pro, which I downloaded. I need to see if there's a Louis Spence. <laughs> get, get them in the ring together, see see what magic they produce. Um, so wh- whenever they get back to standing, yeah, Maeda's just doing the low kicks and Karelin suffers a couple of them and then just moves in and does you know, some kind of front chancery or a, uh, a takeover. There is a point at which Maeda actually manages to wriggle out and goes for well obviously the submission you would try in this situation would be a half boston crab so uh he goes for one of those and corellin he doesn't he looks puzzled more than anything he doesn't look scared or like he's getting the ropes he's just lying down i think he could reach out for the ropes and grab them he's just lying on his front and you can see the cogs whirring in his head as if he's thinking this is doing fuck all isn't it yeah it is all right rope break and then we'll get back to standing (laughs) I think I ge- it genuinely looked like he's like, will I waste a rope break on this? Like, or <laughs> he's like, I could sit here for the whole round 
and it not affect me. But I, I can't be asked. I'll just use a rope break. I was genuinely quite shocked he used a rope break because I, I genuinely was like, this is doing nothing to him. He could honestly just sit there for five minutes and it would, he'd be completely unaffected by it. So fair play for him to deign to use a rope break. Um, yeah. We get yeah. a little- we get a little graphic up on the screen. It seems like you're allowed five rope breaks. We talked about the last episode how the the rules in rings seem to change from month to month. So apparently it's five rope breaks for this uh, for this fight. Then yeah, this is very Pancrase rules, like especially with the they were doing some palm. Well, Maeda was doing some palm striking at one point. Like it's it's clearly you're you're not allowed to strike with a closed fist to the yeah. heads. But you've got the you've got the five rope breaks uh, that you can use to get out of submissions, and if they had knocked each other down, I would imagine that that a knockdown would count as a rope break. Yeah, I mean it generally, and sometimes they had the, like this hybrid point system in rings where I think it was like a rope break counted for one point and knockdown counted for two or something, and when you lose all your points, it was a TKO. But no, none of the fights we watched apart from that. Um, I'm trying to think if it was the Tony Helm Tarry or Bitsadzi one where they were one point away from defeat. But yeah, usually the, the point system just never came into it in this uh, in this kind of stuff. You watch a usual FI fight where they start with 15 points if they get to zero, it's a TKO, and the fight will finish after 10 minutes and the score is something like 14 12. So, like, uh, yeah, yeah, it doesn't usually come into it. Um, Karelin does a trip and then is uh, in control, hauls Maeda up to standing, pretty much just because he can, and then does a big takeover. And then we get the first of two occasions in this fight where he does a technique called the Karelin lift. So just to explain what this is, because it's uh, it's quite well known in, um, in Greco-Roman wrestling circles. Now, Karelin didn't invent this, but it's associated with him because really he was the only heavyweight who was able to pull it off regularly against other heavyweights. And he would use this to just score absolute shitloads of points in Greco-Roman. So what it is, is, I mean, wrestling fans among you, is very easy to explain to you. It is basically a gut wrench powerbomb or a gut wrench suplex, something similar to that. And yeah, he would absolutely fuck people up with it in, in Greco-Roman to the extent there is a story. And again, this comes from the Sean Wheelock article that at the Barcelona Olympics in 1992, one of his opponents, a uh, Romanian wrestler, I believe, just let Karelin pin him after 14 seconds rather than risk taking the Karelin lift. <laughs> Literally jobbed himself out so he wouldn't have to take the move. I don't blame him at all for that. <laughs> not, <laughs> not at all, my God. Yeah, so, um, and it's virtually the last thing that happened in the first round. The The rules seem to stipulate here that there's two rounds of five minutes apiece. Karelin tries an Americana and Maeda does some punches, but gets took over into a side control to kind of end round one. It ends with Karelin in control, which is kind of the story of the uh, of the first round. And Maeda opens round two in much the same way as he did the first one, low kicks, attempts a head kick, but then very quickly goes for a sleeper. Crowd goes ballistic for this. Like, it, they, they are rabid for this uh, sleeper hold. He manages to get it on for like half a second before Karelin manages to roll out and get the ropes. I did like the fact that he put in a sleeper, which... Again, you could choke someone out with it theoretically, but it's such a pro wrestling technique. It was kind of it kind of reminded me of some of them Sakuraba fights where we just do Mongolian chops. You know, again, just because like I like this from pro wrestling, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it because I'm in a position where I'm able to. So yeah, maybe maybe that maybe that's part of what Maeda was going for, just to like play this up for the crowd. He's pretty much in a no win situation. I mean, well, he, he's in a win situation in the sense he's winning to the tune of two and a half million dollars. But. Uh, <laughs> I was like, going to ask you on this. 
do you think it would be easier to beat Corellin in a tiny, like, 10 by 10 ring or in a giant 50 by 50 ring? Oh, I think easier in a giant ring. Because you don't like, have the rope breaks. Yeah, it's still impossible, don't get me wrong, because you couldn't do the thing that Daiju Takase tried against Manny Yarbrough, because as well as being fucking huge and having great technique, Corellin's also clearly superbly conditioned. <laughs> so you, you couldn't even you couldn't even do the um, Nobuhiko Takada versus Hicks and Gracie ring around the roses. Yeah, I think I theoretically think... the bigger one, but like you, 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 you're never beating this man, and no one ever did, really, more or less. I think smaller cage, because... Although uh, I don't think I don't think any, anyone is is winning against Alexander Karolin in a smaller cage. I think I might be able to climb out before, <laughs> before he got to me. And that's my only chance, really. I think actually maybe the cage because I think the only thing you would have that could possibly harm him would be the cage itself. You know when you, you, know, you put yourself into a shopping trolley at Backlash 2001. If you did a kind of matador thing, he would just concuss himself. Uh, yeah, because you're never beating Karolin. In a fair fight, are you? I, I you're saying about what what techniques you have. I think you you need to go great muta, smoke and mirrors, you know, poison mist in the face. That's can, can you imagine if you're watching this and the kid Amida just burst out with the poison mist to Alexander Karelin? That's the only way you're beating him. The only way. The second round is it's it's quite similar to the first in uh, in many ways. Yeah, there's just like Karelin getting the back going for submissions but he's too near the rope so Maeda gets under the rope and there's a bit here where he does a side headlock and my, very close to the side of the ring and Maeda gets to the ropes and I just put it in brackets it's a very pro wrestling spot like that seems to me to be a place where the joins are showing shall we see if, you, if you're going into this with the mindset that it is a work I think that seems uh, maybe a little bit suspect but we'll, we'll get we'll get to after this fight we we go through the action we'll talk about the argument as to why it why it could be a work or whether it could be a shoot Curtin does a kind of power slam again something was really fun to see into a kind of uh, a gator roll type uh, position I don't know what it's fucking called I don't really <laughs> I don't really know anything about Greco-Roman I just know about Alexander Karelin <laughs> and yeah, he, he's just pulling Maeda around, really. And Maeda's going for stuff. I've just got here, Maeda tries to reverse the weight. I don't know what I meant by that. Um, <laughs> I, probably because probably I, I didn't know what he was trying to do. And then we get our second Corellin lift. And this, what he barely gets him off the ground for this, is a very Tenryu Enzigiri of a Corellin lift. Like, not very much air on this. And the, the second round really ends much the first because Corellin's got kind of side control, a bit of a headlock going, the shades of his heroes, Svetlana Gundarenko. And um, and then the, the fight ends. Now, this is the first thing I want to talk about in terms of how legit was this, because Corellin is declared the winner by a judge's decision very fucking quickly after this fight ends. It can't be more than 15 seconds. So now it could be the case that the judges have just looked at this and gone, yeah, he obviously won that, just announced him the winner immediately. But even then, you would think there'd be some kind of pomp and ceremony about it. There is something very Nevada Boxing Commission about this, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> to a certain extent, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Okay. It could be a shoot because because the Japanese way of judging mixed martial arts has always been judge it based on who you think run, won the fight. Just basically vibes, which yeah. isn't the best way of judging. Like, don't get me wrong. But it's always been 
who do you think won the fight, especially given who was winning at the end of the fight? Like if the fight were to continue another five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes, who do you think would win? Hmm. So it's quite quick. There's no like points to tot up. It's not like you've, you've got to check each judge's points per round. It's literally just a matter of holding up a card going Karelin or, or uh, Maeda. So you could theoretically get the decision that quickly. I did think that there'd been a tap that I'd missed, though, because it was just instantaneous. Like Karelin stood up and the, and the ref was lifting his arm. So no, it seemed it seemed like that was the bell for the end of the round. All the records I've seen for this say that it was um, two rounds of, of five minutes apiece. So mm, yeah, yeah, it, just, it definitely it just, was. It just it looked it looked to me like something had happened that it just ended suddenly, and everyone had decided, okay, yep, Karelin won. And like yeah, I was so so but... my argument with this as well is, do you want to be the Japanese MMA judge who decides to make it three and eight hundred and seventy eight and three? <laughs> <laughs> are you going to tell Alexander Karelin no actually I think you lost that fight are you going to of course not of course you're not going to do that you imagine that's a much less wieldy version of that Paul Heyman poem I am the one behind the three <laughs> the end of this article that I read about this it presents the case for it actually being a shoot and then it presents the case for it actually being a work and the, the arguments as to whether it is actually a work mostly boiled down to Maeda actually managed to do some stuff. So uh, he actually kind of gets a takedown in the first round and him actually surviving and arguably no-selling the Karelin lift, where it's like, yeah, Karelin could have absolutely powerbombed that fucker on his neck if he'd have uh, if he'd have wanted to. And the other thing that's in there is the fact that Maeda is selling the exhaustion like Bilio at the end of this fight. Now, you know, I've never done... MMA or really any kind of physical exercise so I don't know how would you be this knackered after 10 minutes I mean Zoe's saying yes so I'm going yeah. to I'm going to oh, go with Zoe on this I uh, I once threw up after six minutes of sparring because it was too physically intense like if especially if you're on the bottom and it's grappling based and you're just you're spending all of your energy just not dying like just not getting choked or or or, uh, or, or arm locked or whatever and then you're also trying to win and trying to get back on top. It's just physically brutal. And I mean, I am not, I have never been as fit as anybody who has stepped into a mixed martial arts ring or a pro wrestling ring. So, you know, don't don't take my level of fitness as word for it. But yeah, I can imagine being that exhausted after 10 minutes of, of getting pulverized by Karelin. All I'm saying is I bet that neither Kandori nor Gundarenko were chundering at the end of their six minutes. No. <laughs> so, yeah, I think like, there are certainly, if you wanted to say this is a work, then there's certainly things you can point to. And also, yeah, the fact that it's it's a good outcome for both people, really. Karelin, he gets to win. He gets the payday. Fine. Maeda, he loses, but he doesn't uh, he doesn't get knocked out or anything like that. He doesn't do a Mark Coleman. We're not getting a YouTube videos called Akira Maeda disgraces Japan. You know, we don't have any, we don't have any of that stuff. So it's uh, yeah, it, you can't say for sure. No, no one to the best of my knowledge has come out and said, yeah, we, we completely worked this and it's really to no one's benefit if they do say this. So, but the, the thing about this fight is that, let, let's assume for a second that it is a it is a work shoot. If we compare it with the matches that we looked at in, the, I mean, look, we're going to take as red that it was more entertaining than the first fucking fight. I mean, that's a given. But if we're just if we're comparing it to the sort of things 
that were happening on the pro wrestling side of things in companies like Rings and UWFI and uh, things like this. Traditionally, it's a wrestling match, basically. I have to say, it's it's a fairly standard, you know, fairly standard match. But I think the fact about who's in it really elevates this. And it's what it's like what Chris Jericho has said on multiple occasions about The Rock versus Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania 18. If you watch that match with the sound off, it's really bad. But it's because it's The Rock and because it's Hulk Hogan and because the crowd's giving it the reaction they do, it really elevates it to be something spectacular. And yeah, the fact you can watch this and go, it's just fucking you're doing the Leonardo DiCaprio points, like fucking Alexander Carrillo in an MMA fight. Like it's the only one he ever did. And and the fact is, it's Maeda as well. It's not just some Joe Schmo, I think makes this quite an entertaining spectacle david you're the you're the the work shoot connoisseur um amongst us like if we're just treating this as a as a, as a wrestling match like what what would you what would you think of this did it did it entertain you yeah i i did i was really entertained by this i think the fact that it was Corell in there and he had such a unique style i really enjoyed watching him try and get to get to grips with it i've always said my philosophy in wrestling is that i love seeing people overcome like puzzles so they're given a they're given a puzzle and they have to try and sort um um solve it that's why i love big tree lads the most because they're dog shit at wrestling and you have to try and get a good match out of them and it's about how you do that that and what the tools you utilize to try and make that good match is what i really enjoy about it and i feel that oddly both guys in this were doing exact same maeda was trying to figure out how to work his pro wrestling style with Corellan. And Corellum was sitting there wondering, how do I entertain? There's probably a bit of him that's trying to fight against his instincts. And, you know, usually he's just he's just there to absolutely marmalise people. But he's he's in MMA. He's it's it's a big, big fight. It's probably one of the biggest crowds, if not the biggest crowd that you'll ever re- wrestle in. Well, definitely wrestle. But you know what I mean? And just kind of watching him have to be a bit more flashy. With him, I I, I really it's a fascinating thing. I really wish Corellan had done more. I'd, I'd watched it all. I think it's really interesting seeing him trying to adapt to the the change in scenery, and as well as that Maeda try and pull a match out of him because it, it's one of those ones where like Corellan is obviously the most gifted athlete of his sport, possibly of her, of of his generation. When there's anyone of compare. And you get to put him in a new surrounding and you get to work with that. I mean, I think that's a, a wrestler's wet dream to kind of build a match around someone who is so proficient and has such a good knowledge of their craft that you can use that craft to make a unique match. And I think they did. I really enjoyed it. If you treat this as an MMA fight, you're like, Corellin's done well there. If you treat this as Alexander Corellin's only ever pro wrestling match, like, yeah, he's actually taken to it pretty well. <laughs> like, he's not as angry, but like, he's like, he's he's done well. You know, he's he's given the crowd their money's worth, and you know, they got to see the big man. Um, yeah, I I thought this was there's kind of a thumbs up as a uh, as a as a spectacle. Like, there was it's certainly it's certainly unique, and uh, you, the thing you could say about the previous fights, like, yeah, it being unique, probably the only thing you can say about it. This had a bit more to recommend it. I certainly don't think we've seen the best of uh, MMA in this episode but i certainly think we've had a nice discussion about it it's been really good to get zoe in and just have her run her expert eye over stuff that is it's bizarre there is no other way to describe this this stuff is weird as shit especially if you are if you're into your ufc nowadays and looking at where the sport of mma has gone in the 25 years since these matches took place 
Yeah, going back and looking at this is kind of like unearthing some cave paintings. You're you're trying to <laughs> decipher what it is these people were doing with the medium. <laughs> it's also like to me, I feel like those wankers on Twitter with uh, Roman statue uh, display pictures who were just like, well, things were better in the past. I'm just looking at this this 1995 garbage MMA and thinking, yeah, you know what? This is better than modern UFC. I hate, <laughs> I hate to say that, but it is. <laughs> it's like I, I seen somebody on that point uh, on Twitter recently talking about how like the medieval people had it so good. Like, you know, and back in medieval times, and list off all the reasons, somebody just replied, a lot of them died because they didn't brush their teeth. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, we, we came a lot, we came a long, long way from the plague ridden dark ages of Japanese MMA um, that we, we've seen today. But if anything, I am one of these people with Roman statue avatars about this. I am much better now. Yeah, you bring this back. I don't. I don't want actual MMA. I, I just want garbage freak show fights. That this is far more entertaining for me. So um, you know, it's it's all downhill. From you're just now. there on Twitter posting still images of Yoji Anjo versus High and Gracie and just return spelled with a V. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you very much for listening to episode number 27 of the Puro podcast. Episode number 28 is going to be the final of this five-part series about wrestlers from the former Soviet Union in Japan. We're going to be moving into the 21st century. So we are going to be looking at um, you know, some of the other big lads from the world of amateur wrestling that made it over in the weird, probably even weirder than the 90s, actually, world of mid-2000 shoot style. We're going to be looking at New Japan. We're going to be looking at a little bit of Joshi as well. And it's going to be a quite broad overview of the 21st century as far as it pertains to that. And as well as that, we're going to be getting into all the wonderful developments that have happened politically. It's just, just been smooth sailing ever since the year 2000 in Russia in particular and the world in general. So do look out for that. Before I sign off, I think we should plug our shit. So David, I shall let you start off. Yes. So um, I run a podcast about Party Festival Football Club called Draw is a Draw. We do a weekly podcast um, at the moment. It's real. It's a a big time for us at the moment. Um, our manager of a good few years has been sacked after we have one of the best performances we've had in about three years. And a club legend has came in to manage the team. There's lots of stuff on and off the pitch that's going on that's just absolutely fascinating at the moment. We're doing lots of historical stuff as well at the moment. So I always say, you know, the weekly episodes are good if you're a Fistle fan, but we, I try and do lots of stuff for people who are not Fistle fans, who just generally, like, you know, are into football or just like good documentaries. So there's lots of stuff you can listen to as, as a neutral and just general funny nonsense, like Halloween episodes of spooky witch noises. And as we talk about like conceding own goals to Clyde, um, it's a broad diaspora of weird football podcast but certainly i would say give it a check out um, if you have a vague tangential interest in scottish football and again there's lots of stuff there that you will enjoy even if you don't care about how we're shit in the championship whatever the deals yeah i mean i would i would interject just to say yeah like the 1921 League Cup final special uh, featuring Daniel of this parish was a genuinely great bit of social history. And so, yeah, there's some good stuff like that. And also that the top 10 worst transfers of the past however many years was great just for the anecdote about the player who 
there was a protracted legal dispute between Party Thistle and his club in Egypt, who reckoned they still owed, owned the rights to him, and that leading to a Twitter spat between fans of this Egyptian club who managed to seek out Partick fans on Twitter, one of whom re- responded with, and I quote, get back in your sarcophagus, you mummified dick. <laughs> I believe it's actually fuck off back to your sarcophagus, you mummified dick. Oh, what a day. But yeah, um, yeah, there's lots of nonsense like that as well. Um, I believe in that episode we also talk about the time Jack Storer punched a bin on his debut. Um, <laughs> incredible stuff. But yeah, um, definitely draw those or draw. Give it a check out. And OK, so thank you very much, uh, David. Uh, Zoe, you've got you've got a lot of strings to your bow. Would you like to uh, uh, please tell the uh, listeners about uh, about that and maybe where they can follow you on the socials as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I am involved in a uh, a lot of queer things in uh, in and around Leeds. So I'm part of Leeds Queer Wrestling, which you can find us on Instagram at Leeds Queer Wrestling. For anyone who is uh, a, a part of the LGBTQ plus community and in any way able to get to Leeds and would like to learn how to pro wrestle, we are hopefully going to have an event July June. Uh, depending on on funding and things like that, so I will be yeah, performing in that event with my my own personal pro wrestling character, uh, who is a uh, a transphobe called Tammy. Fucking uh, <laughs> hell! I was not expecting you to say that. Yeah, it very much feels like is it what's the what's the guy in Mexico? Is it Mark Jendrak when he when he went and done the the Trump gimmick and stuff like that? Was oh, that Sam Adonis. Him? Sam Adonis, that was yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah there was there was, a, there was a conversation in wrestling about like who wants to be a face and who wants to be a heel, and I pretty much like planted my flag firmly in heel. I was like, who will be the biggest bad guy at a queer wrestling group? J.K. Rowling. I'm just going to be J.K. Rowling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she is the biggest heel just in society at the moment. Uh, but yeah, so uh, besides that, I'm also part of a, a nationwide um, fight club uh, for uh, trans femmes. So it's called Trans Femme Fight Club, uh, TFFC. Uh, you can find all our details at tffc.card.com. No, co. tffc.card.co. That's card with two R's. Very hard link to say uh, in an audio format. Uh, but if you are a, a trans woman or, or someone who experiences trans misogyny and would like to get into combat sports or who already is training in combat sports, uh, we meet up and we fight each other to help us uh, train each other because we can't compete in a lot of combat sports being trans. And oh, yeah. And, and depending on when this uh, episode comes out, I might have Leeds Queer Self-Defence set up at that point as well, which is going to be a, a self-defence class in Leeds for queer people. Um, and we're looking at possibly doing the same in Hebden Bridge in Manchester as well. So kind of watch this space on that. I have to say, I think if your if your queer self-defence group is set up within the next six months, then it will probably beat the episode to being released <laughs> going by usual release schedule. <laughs> so don't worry about that and finally you can follow us at per podcast on twitter you can find our podcast on stitcher radio itunes and soundcloud you can read my writing and those of my comrades in well a couple of places you can find it on i maintain the double foot stomp is silly i've also started writing for a Substack account called marshmallow bomb this is a joint collaboration led by uh, our friend luke and uh, this is a joint effort between a lot of us there's all sorts of things in there individual show reviews stuff about lucha i'm more specializing in weird esoteric long reads as i have done for the past 
several years. You can buy my novel, The Rise and Fall of Rikidozan, for your Kindle for £2.49 or print-on-demand paperback for 18 of your finest pounds. People seem to have enjoyed this by and large. Uh, I got a very nice review from my friend Mark recently who reads more books than anyone I know, including myself. So that was very gratifying to have. You can follow me on Twitch at Lord Tenpai, L-O-R-D-T-E-N-P-A-I. I... I've not been streaming Mahjong too much. That's what I usually do. But I took a break because I was getting very down with my shitty results. So I just started doing Pokemon and stuff. So if you like just a pretty chill atmosphere on Twitch, I will teach you how to play Mahjong. I won't maybe teach you the best strategies, but I will teach you my strategies. And I think that is about it so thank you very much for joining us for this episode of the Puro Puro podcast thank you to david and thank you very much for our, to our special guest zoe and we will see you again for episode number 28 where we'll finally be ending this horrible nightmare once and for all okay thank you very much bye